In the early morning of Sunday, August 20th, 2017, comedian Jerry Lewis passed away at the age of 91. His death was recorded at 9.15 a.m. At the time, I was sitting on a cottage dock, likely writing in a journal or watching some loons call out from the water. My phone would be lit up with text messages and Facebook inboxes for the remainder of the day. Messages from friends and people I hadn't spoken to in years, all sending their thoughts and in some cases actual condolences over the loss of Mr. Lewis. It got to the point where I began to question if he was in fact a relative of mine. Certainly that's how it felt. It was the same amount of love and support you'd expect from your social community when you lose a loved one or a family member. Spoiler alert, I'm not related to Jerry Lewis, or any other Lewis, at least not by blood. Though my connection to Jerry is a strong one, a peculiar one, and one recognized by many who know me. And it all started when I was about 10 years old. Yes, sir, those two sensational partners. Bob Hope and Swan Soap, the famous floater and the famous sinker. I first came to know of Jerry Lewis when I learned a young friend of mine suffered from Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a severe disease that eats away at the muscles over time. Millions of kids and young adults around the world are affected. There is no cure. We don't know what we'd have done without you since we arrived in Hollywood. You've always been willing to give us a helping hand when we lack courage and confidence. There was always you to go to. We could confide in you when we feel blue and all alone in the world. We could come to you with our troubles. And Bob? Yeah? You're the type of guy we've always wanted for a mother. <laughs> Shortly after learning this about my friend, I became aware of the annual Labor Day Muscular Dystrophy Telethon, which was then hosted, and had been for a few decades at that point, by Jerry Lewis. I became an avid watcher in the summers that followed, often staying up all night and inside the following day to catch every moment. Through the telethon, I came to know of Jerry Lewis, the comedian, and watched many of his old movies, such as The Ladies' Man, Cinderfella, and one simply cannot forget 1963's The Nutty Professor. I was a fan back then. Nothing more. That, of course, would soon change. Answer the phone. Oh, come on, Jerry, you answer it. Dean Martin, I will tell you why I will not answer the phone. Indubitably, that call is from NBC. And it is indubitably... In 1946, Jerry Lewis shot to stardom when he teamed up with then-struggling crooner Dean Martin. They met in 1945, and their partnership lasted ten years to the day, taking the world by storm in the process. It was my mother and father who introduced me to Martin and Lewis. Most of my childhood was spent watching reruns of shows and movies they had enjoyed in their own upbringing, and Martin and Lewis was no exception. I remember renting a VHS copy of Cinderella, the 1960s slapstick comedy with Lewis in the lead, retelling the Cinderella story with a gender swap twist. We watched the film and my dad pointed out, You see that? he said, pointing to Lewis's wiry, bendy frame flailing across the screen. Well, that's where Jim Carrey, Martin Short, and Eddie Murphy all came from. He was introduced to me as the godfather of comedy, and I was swept away. No longer a member of the 21st century, for the next decade, I would begin a slow and gradual journey back in time. For this episode, I'm going to take you back, all the way back, to the early days. Not necessarily the beginning, but certainly a turning point for entertainment as we know it. Before I do, I should point out, I'm a huge fan of modern entertainment. I think comedy has made incredible strides, television is at an unprecedented level of quality with original programming, and filmmaking is at a point now where it's hard to see where else it can possibly go. But I still want to take you back to the stories that, for me, seem to have formed the pillars of entertainment as we know today. These first couple episodes are going to seem a little nick-heavy. I apologize for that. I promise you I'll be bringing you the stories of some fascinating individuals in the episodes that follow. But for now, I want to give you a little insight into why I'm so obsessed with nostalgia, what nostalgia entertainment is for me, and how I've been led to connect with the individuals you'll be getting to know over the course of this series. So without further ado, let's travel back in time. I'm Nicholas Arnold, and this is Paying Tribute. So, my name is Chris, Chris Long. 
I am a student at the University of Toronto and I'm studying archives and records management. Currently, I am working at the Clara Thomas Archives and Specials Collections of York University. I think it was something that Mark Maron actually tweeted when Bowie died. He said, um, you know, whenever we feel like we miss him, we can always uh, have access to his, his, his music. And we can always feel like what, what drew us to him in the first place is, will always be accessible to us. And that's something that's really, there's, there are a lot of things that aren't great about the time that we're living in now. Something that is great is that we do have access to this plethora of everybody's work, you know, with, with a click of a, a mouse. I think it is important. I think it's always important to look to the past and to do that in a way which is informed and uh, paying uh, respect to what actually happened, not what you think happened or hoped happened. Um, you know, I think that sort of curiosity about the past is an important impulse that people have because what it does is, is make you look for context. And this is something actually I think I've been grappling with in terms of this nostalgia thing, uh, is nostalgia about uh, ignoring the present and kind of uh, closing your eyes and wishing that you were in another time? Or is it about uh, something else which maybe is more enriching and is actually not, not about forgetting the present and throwing yourself into the past, but actually trying to find uh, something that unifies the past and the present. Chris also runs a blog called Golden Age Thinking, where he explores the impact of our past and intricate web of nostalgia through archives and history. You know, the idea of Golden Age thinking has always fascinated me. What is it about the past that gives those so inclined to fall down the rabbit hole a, a true sense of romance and wonder in the midst of a bleary present? I watched as Robin Williams expressed greetings from his home planet Orc. I laughed as Tim Conway cracked up Vicki Lawrence, Harvey Corman, and Carol Burnett. I marveled at the precision and talent of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and further and further down the rabbit hole I fell. It's at the point now where if someone mentions something related to comedy predating my birth, and I haven't seen it, I'm dropping what I'm doing to learn about it. About 12 years after first being shown Jerry Lewis on that Cinderfella VHS, I was 21 years old, living in Toronto, and trying to make it as a... I don't know what. I had gone to film school, was making films where and when I could, and had also tried a bunch of acting, mostly in student short films, the occasional live production, nothing professional. I had a wide range of paying jobs, if you could call them that. Everything from a mop salesman in malls, you know the guys, standing up on stage doing 45-minute demonstrations of the latest in cleaning technology. Yeah, I was that guy. I'd do eight shows a day praying that someone would buy a mop from me so I could make my commission. I worked as a server at a restaurant down the street from me, and I had no experience. As it turns out, neither did the owner. He was a rapper who went by Oz, and I can assure you the moment I stepped into his restaurant with my resume, I was not in Kansas anymore. That restaurant ended up going under. I never officially made it on any payroll, and I could count in a small handful of $10 bills how much I made for the six months I worked there. But the meals? Oh, and the music. Oz and I would often jam together on his piano and drum set. I mean, if no one was coming in to eat there, what else were we going to do? I worked as an actor for international doctors in training. I'd pretend I had schizophrenia or a burst appendix in front of a lecture hall of eager students. All this to say I didn't know what I was. But eventually something clicked. Something, sometime within that first year of exploration out of school. And now here I was, riding the GO train to Brampton, a suburb outside of Toronto. Suitcase in hand, a silver mic stand sticking out from the top. Inside my suitcase was an ill-fitting suit, a couple of character hats, fake buck teeth, glasses, playing cards, trick flowers, you name it. If you were to unzip the front pouch of my suitcase at the time, you would find a bundle of cheap-looking business cards, simply stating, a tribute to Jerry Lewis, and underneath that, my name. I arrived at the retirement residence. This was my gig now. A Jerry Lewis impersonator for the elderly. Long-term care, nursing homes, retirement residences, Alzheimer's societies, whatever it was, I'd do it. My sound guy Dan and I would drive to wherever it was, perform, take our $100, 50 of which went to him, another 20 or so for gas, and that was our routine. See, all the time people come up to me, they always want to tell me a joke. They always think they have the funniest joke stored up in that little noggin of theirs. Well, I'll tell you what makes a joke funny. We are life. 
No, it's true. There ain't nothing funnier. Like, like the other day I was drinking a malt to gain weight and someone came up behind me and tapped me on the back. Oh, it was real funny. It took three grown men to pull me out of the straw. Uh-huh. See, you're a lovely audience. You laugh when you're supposed to. You clap when you're supposed to. You do a wonderful job. You should be very proud of yourselves. It wasn't good. I mean, to a certain extent, we were providing a service, and the stories you come away from with an experience like this are too many to count. But listening to that audio is certainly a little cringeworthy. I was doing old jokes that had little to no relevance in front of people who perhaps wanted to laugh, maybe, but weren't going to, given the setting and circumstances. I didn't sing, which is probably more in line with what they wanted, and what music I did have wasn't live. It was like bombing for 45 minutes in front of people who actually watched the real deal growing up. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's always fun to play that five-year-old character, and it's especially hard to do when you're nine. (laughs) Still, I kept going. There was something in there. I felt it. What was it? Well, I wasn't quite sure. And the more I delved into this newfound exploration of creativity, the more I uncovered the past that had started it all. Atlantic City, 1944. The war was ending and the world was coming up for air for what seemed like the first time in six years. It was a new beginning for many, and show business was feeling that shift along with every other industry at the time. You gotta picture what the Atlantic City boardwalk would have looked like at this time. A resort city in Atlantic County, New Jersey, Atlantic City was a place of livelihood, entertainment, and budding dreams. It was the place to be if you were anybody trying to make it. The boardwalk lining the Jersey Shore was built in 1870 and experienced an incredible boom in popularity in the early part of the 20th century, when it became lined with hotels, stores and shops, and eventually nightclubs, giving the boardwalk and surrounding area its fitting name as the world's playground. It's here in 1946 where, were we to travel back in time, we would see two men leaning over the railing of the boardwalk the sun just breaking dawn over the deserted beach horizon. One is handsome, a chiseled face with a faint scar on the bridge of his nose being the only reveal of near-perfect surgery. Beside him, a skinny 18-year-old with floppy hair greased back in a pompadour and a grin from ear to ear. The men stand side by side in their sweat-drenched suits, having just played the nightclub show of their lives. They know they've found lightning in a bottle. The man with the nose leans over to the skinny one and says, You and I are going to have a lot of fun times together. Just watch. Joseph Levitch was a 16-year-old comedian, if you could call him that. His specialty was in pantomimicry. He excelled in what was then called a dumb act, where a mimic, mime, or comedian would lip-sync to a record, often operatic, Joseph went by the stage name Jerry and followed his father, who was a singer at the time, by taking the stage surname of Lewis. At this time, the name Jerry Lewis meant very little to the public. If anything, it meant you walked out. Jerry was playing nightclubs and burlesque houses along the Atlantic City boardwalk, showcasing his dumb act. He wouldn't talk to an audience. For a comedian, he was rather shy when it came to that. And so he would simply lip-sync, mostly to opera, the occasional Danny Kaye record, flailing his elastic body across the stage amidst cries of bring back the broads and the occasional boo. He was a bombing comic, and it's difficult to say where his career would have gone had luck and fate not stepped in. In September of 1944, things would start to turn around for Jerry, although he didn't know it at the time. Walking with his friend Sonny King outside the Belmont Plaza Hotel in New York, they bumped into a mutual friend, another performer by the name of Dino Crocetti. His stage name? Dean Martin. Accounts vary as to how and when the pair actually met. Dean Martin gave very few interviews and never wrote an autobiography. Jerry, on the other hand, became quite open about his partner in recent years, often contradicting himself. So, for the purpose of this retelling, we'll go with Jerry's version of the events. Or at least one of them. Ten years older than Jerry, Dino was dressed in a camel hair coat, a cigarette hanging just under a near-perfect nose job, which Jerry noticed immediately. He was, and would go on to become, the epitome of cool. They met, shook hands, talked the business a bit, and went their separate ways. This went on for some time, crossing paths, never sharing the stage. Jerry would arrive in town for a gig just as Dean was leaving, and so on and so forth. 
Now, to give you an idea of the culture at the time and what many budding stars like Dean and Jerry were up against, it's important to note that most, if not all, the nightclubs and showrooms in New York were owned and operated in some fashion by mobsters, or at the very least, very connected people. Lucky Luciano, Skinny D'Amato, etc. Prohibition in the 20s had ushered in a new era for under-the-table dealings and the dark side of entertainment. It was a common known fact, never broadcasted too loud, but ever respected and revered. In March of 1946, the Havana Madrid booked both Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin as separate entertainment acts during the same nights. Here, the two men became chummy, getting along very well. They would sit in on each other's acts and occasionally, if the mood felt right, call out a harmless heckle for a laugh. After the standard set of shows, the performers would often hang around until the wee small hours of the morning. At 2 or 3 a.m. on a Wednesday or Thursday night in New York, these nightclubs were the places to be. At this time, they would do what they called the late show, an informal, often improvised hour or two of goofing around where they shared the stage and ribbed on each other's acts. Whichever few audience members were left at the Havana at this time were treated to a smorgasbord of drunken talent. Here, Dean and Jerry shared the stage for the first time, completely undocumented, unrecorded, and unaware of the legacy they would soon be creating. Imagine being one of those patrons, bleary-eyed from pints of booze, a haze from hours of cigarette smoke hanging in the air in front of you, and suddenly you're watching these talented unknowns take over the stage for no one but themselves. The Havana Madrid engagement lasted one week. Neither Jerry nor Dean thought anything special would come of their antics. Although Jerry has stated in some books that he immediately recognized their collaboration as a lightning-in-a-bottle moment, it's more likely, and slightly more realistic, to assume that neither men had the foresight to immediately make themselves into an act. In reality, that wouldn't happen until 1947. For now, Dean and Jerry went their separate ways. At 6 Missouri Avenue, Atlantic City, there once sat a small, intimate supper club popularly known as The Five, but more formally known as The 500 Club. It's no longer standing, eventually burning down in 1973 from an electrical fire in one of the dressing rooms. One of the many buildings of Rat Pack and entertainment lore, like the Sands Hotel, that have fallen into the realm of legend. You can't go to New York and visit these famous spots. They're just simply gone. The space where the 500 Club once stood is now occupied by the parking deck of the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino. Back in the day, as the history goes, the 500 Club was owned by a racketeer named Paul Skinny D'Amato. Built in the 1930s, it became one of the most popular spots on the East Coast and housed the first illegal casino in the city. That's where Skinny's ownership really came in handy. Doors opened at 5 p.m. and wouldn't shut until 10 a.m. the next morning. The last show was at 4 a.m., with illegal craps tables and high-stakes card games happening in the back rooms until dawn. The club's main showroom, the Vermilion Room, lined with burgundy velvet wallpaper, would often house the likes of Frank Sinatra and eventually Sammy Davis Jr., a tactic Skinny used to get his gamblers in the door and keep them there. Here, mobsters wined and dined beside politicians, the former often making deals with the latter. It's mixed history as to whether or not Skinny himself was one of those mobsters, but whether he was or wasn't, there was no denying he was one of the most connected men in Atlantic City, and responsible for making it the notorious playground it would become. When you think of a show like Boardwalk Empire, well, that life and glamour of under-the-table dealings was brought to Atlantic City as a result of the 500 Club and Skinny D'Amato. In July of 1946, Jerry Lewis had been booked to play a few-week engagement at the club. He got along well with Skinny, everyone did. Not so much with Skinny's associate, Wolf. Wolf didn't like the act, and thought its name was well-suited to the performer. At some point in the engagement, it's unclear when, it said that someone was needed to fill the bill for an ill performer. Jerry claims it was he who recommended to Skinny his friend Dean Martin from the Havana Madrid. Skinny didn't want another crooner. Those were a dime a dozen back then, and Dean Martin, although extremely skilled with his vocal talents, wasn't necessarily standing out from the crowd. Jerry insisted, saying they did funny stuff together. A duo, Skinny thought. Well, he couldn't pass that up. 
So on July 25, 1946, Dean arrived at the 500 Club for his first night. Both Dean and Jerry played it safe. Jerry did his act to little or no applause. Dean came on later in the night to do his. It was tame, and it was underwhelming. It was what they had always done. Later on, before one of the late-night shows, Jerry and Dean were paid a visit by Skinny and Wolf in their dressing room, which Jerry has described in the past as a nail on the wall. Where's all the funny stuff you promised? Wolf had said. We better be seeing some funny stuff from the two of you at the next show, or else. Neither Jerry nor Dean wanted to find out what the or else meant. Instead, they sat down in their nail on a wall of a dressing room and took the wrappers from the pastrami sandwiches they'd eaten for dinner. Dodging grease stains and using a dirty eyebrow pencil, Jerry began jotting down all the vaudeville routines and jokes he could possibly remember from his childhood. His parents, Danny and Rachel Lewis, had thrust him into a world of show business at the age of five years old. Performers themselves, Jerry's influences were the triple threat vaudeville performers his parents were surrounded by whenever on tour in the Borscht Belt and Catskill Mountains. Now, for little Joseph Levitch and Dino Crocetti, it was life or death. One, possibly two mobsters, had just given the ultimatum, be funny or else. Talk about flop sweat. Jerry said to Dean, whatever happens, I'm the stooge. If you're the lumberjack, I'm the lumberjack's assistant. If you're the golfer, I'm the caddy. They went on for the 2 a.m. show, a bigger crowd, the pressure mounting. Jerry opened, introducing Dean, who came up and immediately went into a few casual croons. Wolf and Skinny crossed their arms in the back. Then, just as Dean began the intro to a second or third song, Jerry came barreling into the dining room with an armful of plates, smashing them everywhere. Oh, sorry, Mr. Singer Man, I didn't mean to interrupt anything. Well, that's all right, Pally. I was getting pretty tired of that song anyway. Yeah, so was the audience, but I didn't want to say nothing. <laughs> of course, that's only an idea of how it went. Once again, this night is undocumented and unrecorded other than Jerry's account of it. They didn't know what they had yet. And at this point, their only goal was to make the club owner happy. No small task. According to Jerry, they went on to do over two hours of improvised material that had the audience in stitches. Whether it was two hours or just an hour, what we do know is that they struck gold that night. The audience loved it. Wolf and Skinny loved it. Dean and Jerry loved it. And people wanted more. Skinny extended the boys' contracts on the condition that they replicate what they had just done for the remainder of their gig. They were still billed separately, but what audiences would get once they walked into the doors of the 500 Club was an unexpected and off-the-wall spoof of what Hope and Crosby, Abbott and Costello had spent years perfecting before them. To promote their shows, Dean and Jerry would often run down to the Atlantic City beaches. There, Jerry would wade off into the water and pretend to drown, creating a hysterical scene as Dean, pretending to be a casual passerby, would rush in to save him. He dragged Jerry up onto the shore, unconscious, and once a large crowd had gathered, Jerry would spit out water in Dean's face. Both men would jump up and scream, Come see us tonight at the 500 Club! And then they'd run off. They did this each day of their contract, and it worked. Word of mouth spread and people were lined up around the block to see the smash hit comedy duo. When people were asked, What is it that they do? The response was, You just have to see them. And that right there was the secret to their sudden success. There was no describing what they did. To this day, the movies and televised appearances in our archives provide only a censored and conservative snapshot of whatever it was they did at those late night nightclub shows. Whatever it was, it worked. From here on out, the timeline gets condensed into many different accounts. Jerry and Dean were continued to be billed separately, but performed together, their underground fame and following growing. In January of 1947, after sorting it out with their agents, they became a legal team, Martin and Lewis. The duo's demand continued to grow, and they went from earning $100 a week, to $1,000 a week, to $2,000 a week in a matter of months. Not since Charlie Chaplin or Frank Sinatra had the world seen fandom grow as quickly and as passionately for what Jerry described as their lightning-in-a-bottle success. Deals were coming in right, left, and center, movies, radio spots, and eventually, their own radio show. It's the Martin and Lewis Show! (laughs) 
At this time, Dean was also recording his very first records with Columbia from an earlier contract, which Jerry joined in on for a few numbers, their first recordings. The success of this musical comedy duo was unheard of and unseen at the time, and it wouldn't be seen again until Elvis Presley swept the nation in the late 1950s. On June 28, 1948, a new show was introduced to the American public. Hosted by New York entertainment columnist Ed Sullivan, the toast of the town, later called the Ed Sullivan Show, would go on to become a manic and beloved variety show that would later introduce the world to many rising stars, including the Beatles. On June 28th, during its premiere episode, it introduced the entire world to Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, and the world was swept away. Hollywood noticed and started calling, casting them in a film adaptation of a beloved radio show, My Friend Irma. The success of this film, featuring the dynamic duo, led to a sequel and 10 other Martin and Lewis films that audiences clamored to over the next 10 years. In 1950, four years into the Martin and Lewis comet that was firing through Earth, a television variety show on NBC kept audiences glued to their living room box sets every Sunday night. The Colgate Comedy Hour. A variety show, back when corporate sponsorship was much less subtle, or perhaps just more honest than it is today. It would feature rotating hosts each Sunday. Martin and Lewis were one of those hosts. Their episodes would be the highest rated in NBC's records at the time, and on more than one occasion knocked Ed Sullivan out of the top-rated spot. This was the Martin and Lewis I would come to know of some 53 years later. I was in the 8th grade in 2002 when my mother came home from the grocery store with a VHS. Yes, we still had a VCR back then. She had grabbed it from a bargain bin and she handed it to me. It was two episodes of the Colgate Comedy Hour with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. At this point, I had only been shown a few Jerry Lewis movies and had watched his telethon each Labor Day. Much more on that later. But now I was holding in my hands footage from their early days as a team. I watched that VHS tape over and over and was mesmerized, not only by the writing of the sketches and the classic vintage advertisements... Until you see your dentist. Make it snappy, chappy! But by Dean's humor as well and more so by Jerry's immense physicality. I memorized skits, lines, classic trademark sayings like, Oh heavens to Betsy, and give the chance a kid. They all became part of my vernacular at school. And suddenly, I realized I was seeing a way into a side of performing I had never considered at the time. I had suffered from a bit of stage fright as a kid. I was definitely very theatrical and all about putting on shows for family and friends, but the pesky stage fright bug still got me. I remember a particularly traumatizing incident. I must have been 8, 9, or 10, who knows. Every year my siblings and I had to perform at our annual Christmas piano recital for some 200 parents and their kids. Our pieces had to be memorized, that was the big thing we were taught in our piano lessons. Well on this one particular occasion, I got up to that grand piano, my little legs dangling from the bench, 200 parents watching me in silence. I stared blankly at the stand where I wished my sheet music was sitting. And I blanked. I didn't know what to play. I tried a few notes. Nope. A few more. Still no. I was stuck. I turned around on the bench, tears welling up, and I broke. I ran up the aisle crying to my parents. That ingrained a bit of fear in me ever since, and to this day I rarely sit at a piano on a stage without sheet music in front of me. The end of that story is kind of nice. My dad rushed me home while the recital was still happening. We fetched my music and I came back. Recital still going on. I went right back up to that piano and finished my song. Years later, I never saw myself as much of a performer. I played piano pieces at a few talent shows, with my music of course, but was way too afraid to branch out into anything else. At this point in my life, I was telling everyone and everyone was telling me that I was going to be a movie director, as I called it back then. I was obsessed with Spielberg and the idea of making magic on a screen. Performing truly wasn't even on the radar. Well, school was no different. I struggled fitting in with the norms presented by my elementary peers and dealt with my fair share of bullying as a result. In a desperate bid to not only remove their son from what he described to them as a toxic school environment, but also to help him find his creative path, my parents enrolled me in an arts program geared towards grades seven and eights in my hometown of Kingston the Limestone Education Through the Arts Program, or LEAP for short. There, I learned to find my voice, thriving under influential and motivating teachers, the likes of which I had never seen before. 
By the eighth grade, I was beginning to find my footing and confidence when it came to entertaining my peers, or even becoming more involved in the various productions and projects our arts program would put on. By October of 2003, the auditions were posted for the annual Coffee House, a variety talent show that included the grades 7 and 8s, but with more creativity and frankly talent than I had ever seen at any school in my 13 short years. Having seen the show in the 7th grade, I knew the following year I had to give it a shot, and a summer of getting to know Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin through a VHS tape gave me a way to do so. By September of that year, I had enlisted my friend in recreating a Martin Lewis act for the upcoming coffee house. I would play Jerry, he would play Dean. He looked nothing like Dean. Josh had a round, freckle face with strawberry blonde hair and a high-pitched voice that hadn't yet cracked. It didn't matter. At the time, I was much more concerned with how I looked and sounded like Jerry. Neither one of us owned suits. After all, we hadn't yet experienced our 8th grade graduation, a time when most young boys and girls get tailored for their first formal wear. Instead, we borrowed hand-me-downs from cousins and friends at school. We watched my VHS tape over and over, rewinding, transcribing on scraps of paper until we nailed down a 10-minute act word for word. We didn't understand 90% of the jokes we were saying. Not only were they old, but they involved things like jokes about Jerry's Jewish heritage, Dean's Italian upbringing, taxes, sexual innuendo, cool slang from the 1940s, stuff even the brightest of 13-year-olds wouldn't quite be catching on to yet. But it didn't matter. The material was strong, and we were delivering it verbatim, just as we saw Dean and Jerry do on the tape. And we were a hit. Amongst the parents and teachers, anyway. Those who knew who Jerry and Dean were were thrilled to see two boys at the onset of puberty struggling to pitch their voices to match the vocal stylings of Martin and Lewis. You fellas from the center, I want to see you in my house tomorrow morning. Watch the car. The coffee house performance went down in the history of our class for that school year. Even our classmates recognized that people out there found us to be hilarious, and we gained a newfound respect from our peers. And it got me noticed by a few of those parents in the audience, in particular Laurel and David, who happened to be a part of a touring murder mystery dinner theater troupe. Two years later, the 13-year-old who did Jerry Lewis at an 8th grade talent show had stuck in their minds long enough that when the time came to cast their upcoming Christmas murder mystery, their minds gravitated to me. I was brought on board to join the troupe Partners in Crime for their annual Christmas murder mystery, For Whom the Jingle Bell Tolls. In it, I would play a hapless mail clerk in the 1920s, Jeremy Jones. The lines written on the page and the ability to improvise with guests immediately gave room to expand upon a Jerry Lewis impression I had only touched upon at the 8th grade coffee house. I would go on to perform with the troupe as Jeremy Jones until I was 20 years old. Performing with Partners in Crime made me aware of one thing. I could do a half-decent Jerry Lewis shtick. I could improvise in that style of comedy, running around people's tables, messing with their meals, interrupting conversations, and becoming the lovable center of attention, just like the self-professed nine-year-old character Lewis portrayed in most skits and films. Most of it were one-liners and highlights from the Colgate Comedy Hour that had ingrained in my brain over the course of a few years. At this point, I now had three box sets of all the Martin Lewis Colgate Comedy Hour episodes on DVD, and I watched all of them religiously. I knew their beats and ad-libs by heart. Despite Jeremy Jones being an original character and on paper having nothing to do with Jerry Lewis or his mannerisms, I did almost everything I could to turn it into that. So much so that guests, when interacting with me, would chime in with quips such as, Hey, where's Dean? Shouldn't you be running a telethon somewhere? Hey, lady! You get the idea. It was clear to them what I was doing, even if it wasn't yet clear to me. It just made sense. Jeremy Jones seemed like a Jerry Lewis type. It was how I chose to play the character. But by the time I was ready to hand in the towel with Partners in Crime, I was living in Toronto. I had studied at Vancouver Film School, remember my goal was always to be a filmmaker, 
and I'd graduated from their one-year intensive program at the age of 19, eventually landing myself in Toronto. Finding my footing after film school wasn't easy, as was evident by the plethora of oddball jobs I had entertained in my first year as a Torontonian. And so when the time came to potentially do the Partners in Crime gig again, and deciding that I had perhaps outgrown the role, it dawned on me that I could turn this into something more than just an annual Christmas season appearance. Surely there was something more to my fascination with Jerry Lewis and his era of entertainment. And I would find out what that was on a fateful trip to Niagara Falls in the spring of 2010. The Greg Freewin Theatre is a beautifully designed building located in the heart of downtown Niagara Falls, close to Clifton Hill and the Fallsview Casino, making it a big part of the entertainment action for tourists. The home of internationally acclaimed magician Greg Freewin, the theatre hosts numerous Vegas-style acts and tribute shows year-round, drawing audiences from all over Canada and the U.S. In the spring of 2010, my family and I were some of those guests, dining at the theatre and watching Greg Freewin himself make a tiger disappear on stage. But it wasn't the magic show that would stick with me at this visit. I was enthralled by the world Niagara Falls appeared to be to the lowly traveller, a poor man's Las Vegas, yet entertaining in its own charming way. Niagara Falls seemed to be this epicenter of entertainment, aided by the strategic placement of its large casino, which frequently featured nostalgic acts. It wouldn't be uncommon to see things like the Bee Gees are back or Frankie Avalon in person on the ads outside of the Fallsview doors. Then there's Clifton Hill, the main strip from the downtown core to the viewing points of the falls themselves. Clifton Hill is lined with haunted houses, arcades, wax museums, the famous Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. It's easy to spend an afternoon and a few hundred dollars on some of the attractions that catch your eye there. Then, just off from Clifton Hill, there's the Greg Freewin Theatre. As I roam the streets of Niagara Falls with my family before heading to our dinner and show, I remember fantasizing about how cool it would be to live and work in Niagara Falls as an entertainer. In some small way, it reminded me of the eras and lifestyles I had read about through the numerous biographies of people like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, the list goes on. There was a nostalgic charm to it all, and a livelihood that seemed fun and intoxicating. But it was while I was sitting in the Greg Freewin Theatre waiting for the show to begin that the real epiphany happened. An ad popped up on the screens on either side of the stage, drawing the attention of next to no one in the audience, it seemed. They were busy with their meals, socializing, getting every last bit of chatter in that they could before the show started. But I noticed. The ad was for an upcoming show, The Rat Pack. Frank, Sammy, and Dean. A flashy photo of the three performers impersonating the trio accompanied the show dates, times, and ticket information. It was the actor portraying Dean Martin that caught my attention in particular. He carried a striking resemblance and a charm and confidence that jumped from the still image across the auditorium floor and right onto my table. What if I found myself a Dean, I thought. Hey, wait a minute, the stream of consciousness was now running. Are there any Martin and Lewis shows? What if I did one? What what if we did one? What if we could perform it here at the Greg Freewin Theatre? The rest of the night was a fantasy of the life of performing, touring, and show business I was sure would soon follow this stroke of genius. In the weeks that followed, I dove into heavy research, eventually tracking down who that Dean Martin was I saw in the ad. His name was Steve, and I came to learn of his impressive resume and just how well-regarded he was as one of the leading Dean Martin impersonators in the world. On his website, a quote from Dean Martin's own daughter, Dina, reads, I closed my eyes, and I thought it was Dad, but it was Steve. Pretty impressive. Would a guy like him want to perform with a guy like me? Perhaps, I had to find out. I reached out to Steve, emailing him and explaining a bit about myself. I complimented him on his incredible body of work and asked for advice. How does one start in this unusual world of entertainment? Surely it's not the normal path that just a regular actor would take. Along with the message, I included a video of myself doing the classic Jerry Lewis typewriter skit to the camera. Within 24 hours, Steve responded. My advice to you, he wrote is to watch everything you can on Jerry Lewis, even the Martin Lewis stuff. I have a collection of the Colgate Comedy Hour shows that I watch, so I could see how Dean walked, talked, and played off of other people. Learning your character's timing, physicality, and speech is crucial. 
Jerry was a straight-up wacky comedian, and to capture him, you have to not only resemble him physically, but in body language and in speech patterns and timing also. Both Dean and Jerry could make a bad joke good because of their timing. That email led to a long-distance phone call where I contacted Steve at his home in the U.S. As soon as I introduced myself, I heard him on the other end of the line slip into a greasy, Hey, ya, pally. A chill went up my spine. He sounded exactly like Dean. I responded with a high-pitched, Hello. We talked about everything from the nature of this line of work to the Martin Lewis era. He mentioned that he had sent my video off to his agent and that we'll just have to wait and see what happens. His agent happened to be based in Toronto, which was convenient enough for me, and upon further research, I discovered that he not only represented Steve and many other tribute artists, but classic entertainers like Frankie Avalon and Nancy Sinatra as well. Steve warned me that his agent's main concern would be how authentic I was in the Jerry Lewis persona. There's a lot of bad imitators out there, he said, for everyone, Elvis, Dean, probably Jerry too. He ended the phone call inviting me to come and see his Rat Pack show perform at a dinner theater in Mississauga, a suburb of Toronto. There I could meet him and his agent, and we'd go from there. Well, I couldn't purchase a ticket fast enough. This was my chance. The show was in December, and so I would have to wait a good four or five months before anything would come of this exciting lead. As the evening of the Rat Pack show approached, I wasn't sure if I was just headed into a casual evening of entertainment or an audition of sorts. I didn't have a whole heck of a lot of friends in Toronto at this point, so the ticket was for a single table. As I took the GO train out of the city and walked a mile or so from the station to the Stage West Hotel and Dinner Theatre, I memorized and quickly sang to myself the lyrics to Rockabye Your Baby, a song made famous by Al Jolson and further made famous by Jerry Lewis. What if they asked me to sing or do something a bit? I had to be prepared. Anyone walking past me that night would have walked past a young 21-year-old singing and speaking in strange voices to himself as he walked at a heightened pace. I picked up my ticket and sat down at my table, surrounded by couples, families, friends. I was the only single person in the entire venue and immediately felt self-conscious. If anyone asked why I was alone, I'd use the old excuse that I was a critic or an agent, something professional that didn't single me out too much. Once our meals were in front of us, the house lights went down and a rousing big band sound filled the stage. Out stepped Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin. Not actually, of course. But the actors portraying them were so spot on, almost everyone in the theater did a collective double take. And there was Steve. His suave demeanor was so reminiscent of Dean, the silky quality of his speaking voice, and when he sang, you could close your eyes and you'd think you were hearing the real thing. And the others hit the mark as well. The Sammy Davis Jr. tap danced his way into the hearts of the audience. Their banter was exactly how the recording sounded, and their voices were powerful enough to bring the walls of the Stage West Theatre down. After the show, I lined up with the audience out in the lobby as eager fans waited for a chance to get a photo or two with the three stars. I continued to push myself to the back of the line so that I would have more time with them once I got to the front. I noticed, as I waited, that all three of them stayed in character as they spoke to excited patrons. At no point did Steve break the persona. He was Dean Martin, and continued to be him off stage. It was interesting, I thought. At what point does Steve get to be Steve? Finally, I reached the front of the line. Shaking Steve's hand, I complimented him on a perfect show, and then proceeded to introduce myself. Well, hey, Pally, Steve said, actually slipping out of the character for a moment. Thanks so much for coming. Come and meet Paul. Paul was Steve's agent, an older gentleman who had clearly been in the business for a while. Both Steve and Paul seemed excited to meet me, with Paul saying something along the lines of, Ah, so this is the kid. Steve invited me backstage where I met the actor playing Frank, a man by the name of Gary. I followed Gary and Steve through the kitchen and out the back door where, still in their tuxes, they smoked their cigarettes and chatted with me. Then suddenly, out of the blue, Steve eyed me up and down. All right, so give me Jerry, he said, taking a puff of his smoke. Right now, I asked? Yeah, give me a little Jerry, go ahead. My heart was pounding. I had a feeling I would be put on the spot, but I hadn't worked out exactly what I would do if that happened. 
Suddenly, I was forgetting all the words to Rockabye Your Baby, so I took a deep breath and I went for it, convulsing in the dark back alley of the theater in my high-pitched Jerry voice. Hello. Oh, hello, Dean. Steve lit up as soon as I hit the higher register. Not bad, he said. They invited me to the hotel lounge for drinks where I met the Sammy of the group. All three of them were American, and the stories they had to share had my eyes as wide as saucers as I listened. The Sammy of the group pulled out his wallet and showed me a tiny Polaroid picture he kept on him at all times. It was a photo of him standing arm in arm with the real Sammy Davis Jr. My jaw dropped. But what Steve had to show me would make it hit the floor. Steve took out a small chain from around his neck. On it was a key. The key to Dean Martin's Rolls Royce given to him as a gift of appreciation from Dean Martin's family. On his pinky finger, Dean Martin's ring, engraved with DM on the side. Who were these people? And how in the hell was I sharing drinks with them? We talked and drank until 1am, the boys continuing to ask me if I was even old enough to drink. Every time Steve went out for a cigarette, he invited me to go with him and we would chat for 15 to 20 minutes in the cold December air. When we called it a night, Steve told me to set up a meeting with his agent, then shook my hand and said, Keep in touch, kid. It was one of the most exhilarating nights of my early 20s. Easily. I mean, I didn't have much to compare it to back then, but in that moment, I felt like I was on to something. Something big. Paul and I did meet, a few months later in a Tim Hortons just off the highway in Oakville, another suburb of Toronto. Paul admitted I had potential, but he needed to see more. I needed to get out there and make some stuff happen. Any bit of live footage in front of an audience would convince him that I could do this and match the talent and skill level of Steve. His main concern was my voice. A natural baritone, at 21, it was a strain for me to hit Jerry's register. And Paul, of course, was after 100% authenticity. I was frustrated. At what point do I just completely meld into Jerry Lewis, leaving Nicholas Arnold behind, I thought. That said, Paul was right. I had nothing to show him other than a video of me doing an old routine in my parents' living room. I needed something professional. I needed a gig. Around this time, my father was being more and more involved with the Knights of Columbus in my hometown of Kingston. The Knights of Columbus is the world's largest Catholic fraternal service organization founded in 1882. My father was hard at work at an event being held at the parish church in early 2012, a ladies' appreciation night. An evening of food and entertainment honoring, well, all the ladies. He needed entertainment and turned to me. It was him who presented the idea of Jerry Lewis to me. It was a risky suggestion. Jerry Lewis is loud, brash, and outlandish, perhaps not well suited for a church reception event. Still, my dad kept pushing the idea, and with that idea, I saw an opportunity. Maybe, just maybe, something like this could go over well enough with this type of crowd. I could film it, send the footage to Paul, and my career as a professional live entertainer would take off like a rocket. I had thrown together a 10-minute set of clips and bits I found off YouTube. Nothing I presented was original. Every joke, comment, and one-liner was either ripped from Jerry's own shows or classic vaudeville material that I had carried over. I was impersonating Jerry Lewis here, truly pretending to be him through and through. For those of you that have not been aboard any jet before, we should like to have you sit back, relax, calm, and serene in your mind in the knowledge that it's my first time, too. He says, yeah, after 25 years, I've been driving a hearse. And it won't fit, lady. But man, was it working. The crowd was loving it. And now I felt like I had obtained enough footage from that 10-minute set to send to Paul and win him over. And I did send it to him. I got a response. I needed to sound more like Jerry. The clip didn't do it. It didn't convince him that I had what it took to work professionally, despite the enthusiastic cheers and applause from the crowd. So instead, I used the footage and threw together a small promo, which I then emailed to almost every nursing home and retirement community in the greater Toronto area. If Paul wouldn't take me, I'd make my own career out of this calling. And I'd start with the only places that made sense. I'd bring the show to the people who grew up watching the material, on the TV sets and listening to it on their radio stations. I began writing a 45-minute one-man show comprised of famous routines, monologues, and jokes. 
At the time, I was working as a barista at a second cup in the downtown core of Toronto. I was quite vocal about my plans, both to some of my favorite routine customers and my coworkers. Within days, I had the support of all of them, with one regular customer even going so far as to buying me my own vintage Shure microphone, the kind you'd maybe see an Elvis impersonator sing into. I donate to charity about once a year. You can be my charity, he had said. You're doing a good thing. I also had the support of some of my coworkers. One of them, Mary, offered up the skills of her boyfriend, Dan, a sound guy with his own equipment. We wouldn't be making much from these retirement home gigs, but I would certainly be willing to hand over whatever little money I did make to Dan if it meant having a microphone that worked and sound cues coming out of speakers. I also employed my coworker, Eva, to come along with a video camera and tape whatever happened for good measure. A few days into emailing out sales pitches and I had a booking at a long-term care residence in Barrie. I was off to the races, my merry band of crew members in tow. Teresa, everybody give Teresa a hand for getting out here. Yeah, great job. How are you, Teresa? How are you, sweetie? You're great. Are you having a good time? Yes. I'm sorry. You know, it's an interesting thing performing for retirement homes. When you visit enough of them, you see firsthand a wide range of care needs. This particular home was long-term care, and in many ways felt a bit more like a hospital than an actual retirement home. My audience ranged from different cognitive levels and healthcare needs. Whereas some of the other homes I would go on to visit resembled more of a hotel with able-bodied occupants enjoying wine and dinner while I would perform. It's a first-hand look at the different ways we care for our elders in the Western world, and the different ways in which they need our care. And you certainly come away with a lot of stories when you go on what I like to call the Retirement Home Summer Tour. Hello. Oh, hello. Hello. Hello, my name's Norman and I'm five. <laughs> Yay, Norman. At one particular show, I was loading my gear into the elevator with Dan when we saw a sign posted in the interior advertising our show. It read Musical Appreciation Night with Jerry Lee Lewis and a picture of Elvis Presley. Not every home understood what it was I did, and some treated me more like babysitters than entertainment, something they could park their residence in front of for an hour without having to worry about anything. And it didn't go over particularly well with the audience themselves either. Not always, anyway. A major rule in comedy is to know and understand your audience, and I certainly had no flying clue who my audiences were for this one-man show. For starters, I was pretending to be someone, truly walking out in front of them and saying, Hello, I'm Jerry Lewis. But I'm not him. And depending on the cognitive levels of various residents, that can be horribly confusing. As a result of making my show a true, authentic impersonation, most of my jokes were taken out of context, deeply embedded in the political and social climate of the 1940s and 50s. Again, not something you necessarily want to be tossing at an audience in 2012. To make matters even worse, I didn't sing. I was still pretty shy when it came to that, but at the end of the day, that's all residents really wanted, to listen to and remember music. Often the show would be met with tepid applause and the odd chuckle. One particular venue had me performing in their dining room while the residents ate. I was situated on the floor in amongst the tables, a true dinner theater setup. While halfway through my opening monologue, a tedious run-on sentence of old vaudeville jokes, one of the residents had decided that he had had enough. Only a few feet away from me, he began to leave. His quick getaway was marred by the fact that he was using a motorized wheelchair, requiring a complex three-point turn as he navigated between the tables, beeping as he backed up. I kept talking over him, hoping the other residents wouldn't notice what was happening. Of course they did. Finally, he broke free and glared at me as he sped out of the dining room. Can't win them all, I thought. And I wouldn't. The major takeaway from the Retirement Home Summer Tour was the video footage. I had amassed a few hours of footage that I cut into snappy promos that really made the show look sharp. Something you'd perhaps want to bring your grandfather or grandmother to. I sent the footage to Paul, again getting the same response. Great job. Keep at it. I wanted them to take me on now. I didn't want to wait. I wanted a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis show. Why couldn't they see that I was ready? Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I couldn't yet see that I was nowhere close to being ready. Still, my insistent yearning to be a part of a Martin and Lewis tribute show led me to searching for Dean Martin impersonators who resided and worked in Canada. I stumbled upon one who was performing at a theatre in London, Ontario. 
Doing further research, I discovered that his show was being presented by a promotions company based out of Barrie. This promotions company booked acts with ready-made shows and rented out theaters to showcase them. I emailed them almost immediately, citing the Dean Martin show I had found. I inquired if they had a Jerry Lewis and if they ever thought of teaming up with one. I got a response that same night, short and to the point. They asked me if I had a 90-minute show and if I would be willing to travel to a town called Aurelia, north of Toronto, to perform it. At this point, I had only developed 45 minutes of very shoddy material that I had solely tested in front of seniors in the comfort of their homes. But I was cheeky, bold even. When a promotions company asks you if you have a 90-minute one-man show prepared, you say, yes I do, when are you thinking of? They asked me what my rate was, and I felt $200 was more than sufficient. After all, that would be over $100 an hour. Who could complain over that? Of course, for a measly $200, they didn't bat an eye. And before I knew it, I was booked with a 90-minute, two-act, one-man show at the Aurelia Opera House in their Gordon Lightfoot Auditorium, a 700-seat theater. And I would be doing this two months from the night I first reached out to them. My work was cut out for me. Within two months, I would need to write, create, and endlessly rehearse a 90-minute one-man show. To add pressure without glancing at a frame of footage from my act, the company set my tickets at $30 a piece. Not only did I need to create a show, I now needed to create one that would have people leaving the theater saying, $30? I would have paid $40. My work at Second Cup had me opening the shop at 6am and making drinks until around noon. For two months, I would immediately walk home at the end of my shift and rehearse until 8 or 9 p.m., sourcing material, filming my physical routines, and perfecting the precision of Jerry's slapstick. The show still wouldn't feature any singing. I wasn't sure how to pull off such a feat without live musicians. But I was determined to make it insanely physical. I wanted the audience to leave saying things like, how did he bend his legs like that? And wow, he has a lot of energy. Losing pounds from my already skinny figure as I rehearsed hours on end, sweating until I would drop. I shaped a 90-minute show, two acts, around the fictional idea that a 20-year-old Jerry Lewis was entertaining an audience in 2013. I employed two of my close friends, Gary and Rebecca Carr. Gary and Rebecca were married, still are. They have a growing family now, too. A dog, a couple of kids. But at this point, they were a newly married couple. I knew Gary from high school, he was a good four years ahead of me, and I met Rebecca after Gary had already proposed to her. They were and continue to be a big part of my life. Further to that, in the spring of 2012, Gary, Rebecca and I had driven to the Casino Rama Resort and Hotel just outside of Aurelia to see the real Jerry Lewis perform live at the age of 85. We sat 14 rows from the stage and watched as the living legend sang songs, told stories, and of course berated his audience in a tone that he became famous, or perhaps infamous for, in his old age. Both Gary and Rebecca were fans of old school comedy and seemed to support my passion for it as well. Gary and Rebecca had never stage managed a show before, but Gary had done enough community theater in the past as an actor that I trusted their instincts wholeheartedly. We can always pick some. It's gonna be good to just mark the. Uh, oh, blocking. We're gonna be doing yeah, just to do like sure. a normal stage block and mark sure. all the tables. We can always get yeah. some, especially because we're gonna move this off stage if we have a day. Yeah. I'm gonna go to use props. I'm going back. Um. Okay. Piano. I'm imagining maybe uh, like we're gonna. Have, we may have to reconfigure. Big night. Big night. The naivety of my younger years blinded me from the fact that I had taken the biggest risk in my creative career thus far. And in just a few short months, we would find out if it would pay off. Together, the three of us began preparing for my one-night engagement at the Aurelia Opera House. Tribute is written, produced, and edited by myself. A big special thanks to Christopher Long for his interview. For a complete list of music used and Creative Commons licenses, please read the description wherever you are listening to this episode. Some of the names in this particular episode have been changed for privacy purposes. And here's a little sneak peek of next week's episode. I could stop it. 
I could walk right out on stage and tell everyone to go home. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I wouldn't have a chance to find out. Okay, will you let me know when we're good? Awesome, thanks. Gary nodded, listening to a voice in his headset. He turned to me. You ready, Nick? No, I said. And then, yes. Gary went back to the headset. Okay, bring the lights down. I could see through the wings as the house lights went down and a hush fell over the crowd. Gary leaned into the house microphone and putting on his best announcer voice, he spoke. Ladies and gentlemen, the crazy half of the Martin and Lewis duo, here he is, Jerry Lewis! That's next week on Paying Tribute.